0: Before we jump in to the passage, let's start with the young ones, kids. Uh, and I'm going to let you know what this passage is going to be about. I'm going to let you know what the sermon is going to be about. <clears throat> so to do that, Simon says, kids stand up. Simon says, kids stand up. That's good. Okay. Simon says, stand on one leg. Can you do that in your aisles? Try it. Okay. Now we're going to be very careful here. Okay. Jump on one leg. Oh, Simon didn't say, but I started doing it too, so that was also not good. Uh, okay, but, so here's the point. Uh, you all can sit down now. Oh, Simon didn't say. Do we have anybody standing? That's okay. Okay, kids are really good. Kids are really good at imitating. That just means like you see something and you do what you're watching and seeing. You're, you're, you're like that other thing. Um, even uh, babies, are good at imitating. Because what do you do with a little baby? You look at a little baby and you can play peekaboo and you want them to do the same thing. You want them to peekaboo. Uh, you can do raspberries at a really itty little bitty baby like and they'll, they'll do it back. You, you know, baby gets a little older and you start saying things like, oh, say my name, say Blake, or you know, say, you know, try to get them to say your name. Uh, kids get better at imitating as they get older. I'm going to play something for you to prove this. Let me see if I've got it pulled up. I do. Okay. Uh, This is Jax, my oldest, who's now 14 years old. This is when he is just two years old, and he has already picked up how to watch football. If you want to see this video uh, later after the service, just come find me. I'll show it to you. Can you don't hear that? Yeah. Yelling, edge of chair. He's high fiving. He's throwing up his hands on a bad call. Smiling, laughing. All you jacks. <laughs> Fifty-five degrees <laughs> still. New daddy. Right, Right, Jack. It goes on, and on, if you want to see this, you can come watch this later. Um, okay, so uh, uh, we learn to imitate, even even as little kids, and we're supposed to imitate. Our parents actually want our kids to imitate us, the good parts of us. Uh, but do you know who your parents really want you kids to imitate? Come on, say it, Richard. God, okay, how do we, like, ooh, how do I imitate God? What do I look to to imitate God? Who do I look to? Like, if I want to know what God is really like, I can look at the Bible who tells me about Jesus. (laughs) Good. Who is God? So that's why we look at Jesus is like Jesus is God. And Jesus tells me who I'm supposed to be like. I'm supposed to be like him. Jesus is constantly at work with you. And get this. He is constantly at work in you by his Holy Spirit because he puts his Holy Spirit in you. He's at work in you to make you look more and more and more and more like him now here's one way he makes you look like him How about this is where is Jesus right now in heaven. in heaven okay is Jesus in heaven right now just a soul is he just a is he just a spirit up in heaven no no he is what he has been he Resur. oh my Henry yes he has been resurrected he died on the cross he went into the ground for three days and then he was bodily resurrected and now he is in heaven body and soul and he looks amazing he looks awesome okay is Jesus always going to be resurrected himself and are we just going to be souls in heaven no, what are we waiting for Jesus to do? What are the people in the souls in heaven? What are they waiting for Jesus to do? They waiting for They're waiting for Jesus to come again. Teddy that's what I'm talking about. Yes, they are waiting for Jesus to come again because when Jesus comes again, he is going to get your dead body out of the grave. He's going to put your soul back in your body and then he is going to transform your body into glory so that you look like him body and soul. It is going to be so awesome. That, I mean, you will look so beautiful. You will look like a star, the Bible says. You will be so awesome to look at. Like the Bible has, uh, like we have trouble putting it into words. And here's the point, like death, like getting old, dying, getting sick, dying. The good news is death does not win. Jesus wins. And Jesus beat death, and he didn't just beat death for himself, he beat it for you. He really has overcome your death by going to the cross and dying for your sins and beating your death. Jesus is going to get you out of the grave. That is our ultimate hope. And when he does, you are going to be awesome like him forever in glory. That's what we're going to look at today. We are in our series in the Old Testament book of Zechariah, Israel had been taken into captivity, just playing a little catch-up. Remember, Israel had been taken into captivity by Babylon, which was the new big world, why is it not fitting in there? Uh, The new big world empire. Uh, Babylon comes along, and they defeat Israel, take them into captivity for 70 years. And then along comes Persia, the new world empire, and they defeat Babylon, and they free the Israelites, they free the Jews and say, y'all can go back, if you want to go back to your, your homeland, Jerusalem, rebuild it, rebuild your temple, have at it, go for it. And so the Jews do, they go, uh, a group of them go back and they start rebuilding, but as they start to rebuild, they just, they have problem and difficulty and suffering everywhere they look, like from materials to opposition to uh, the people that are already there are getting them in trouble with Persia, uh, like claiming that they're being seditious. And so it's just, it's a terrible time and the, and the work in front of them. It, it's too much. It's too hard. And they're too few, and they're too weak, and so God gives these visions to the prophet Zechariah, revealing His presence with His people, that He really is with His people, and He sends the prophet Zechariah to these people. So the text this morning, we're back in Zechariah chapter four. Uh, This is the fifth vision. Remember, if you weren't here last Sunday, last Sunday we saw this, and we saw this giant lampstand in this vision, like this menorah, this giant lampstand. And it's representing, it's this, we had fun, it's a synecdoche. It's, it's a part that represents the whole. So the menorah lampstand really stands for the whole temple. And the temple represents the residence of God. And so ultimately, that lampstand represents the people of God, because that is where God truly resides, is in and with his people. So uh, just remember that as we're reading this, the lampstand is it's the church, And this morning, we're going to focus on these two olive trees. Uh, So please stand for the reading of God's word. Pay attention to these olive trees. And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me like a man who is awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? I said, I see and behold a lampstand all of gold with a bowl on top of it and seven lamps on it with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, like, what are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, do you not know what these are? I said, no, my Lord. And he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hand shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever is despised the day of small things shall rejoice, and he shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These seven are the eyes of the Lord, which range through the whole earth. And then I said to him, what are these two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand? And a second I, and a second time I answered and said to him, What are these two branches of the olive trees which are beside the two golden pipes from which golden oil is poured out? And he said to me, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my Lord. And then he said, These are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Okay, the weird thing in the vision, besides the huge golden lampstand, uh, is that this lampstand is flanked by two olive trees on either side with its branches stretched out over the lampstand. That's weird, but it is familiar. It's a familiar image. Have, Have you all heard of the Ark of the Covenant? It's a, it's a wooden chest covered in all gold, and inside it, it held the Ten Commandments. The lid of the ark, the, the top of that ark, the lid, uh, was this elaborate piece with two golden angels on top of it, and their wings are stretched out over, uh, over the ark so that the, their wings meet in the middle, and, and they're overshadowing. They're stretching out over the cover of the ark. Uh, th- that lid of the ark... Uh, was, well, come to that in a second. The two olive trees, that's what they look like over this lamp. The two olive trees with their branches spread out over the lampstand look just like the top of that ark chest. And that arc chest, the, the, the ark, uh, it was called, the top of it was called the mercy seat. It almost looked like those wings coming out, like formed a, a, a seat, a stool. And it was called the mercy seat because the ark was the throne of God. And really, really, other places, it takes that image a step further and says, really, it's his footstool. And so you, you picture God seated in heaven, in his heavenly throne, and his legs coming down to the earth, and his feet rested on the ark, is the picture. Which brings to mind another familiar image to the Old Testament people of God. The tunis, the tunis, the duality of the olive trees, bring to mind the gigantic twin pillars of fire and cloud that led Israel through the, dark, through the uh, wilderness. You remember when Moses, went, let my people go and they come out of Egypt, and they're led through the wilderness by this gigantic column of smoke and fire. And, and we're told that uh, those twin pillars uh, were a picture of the legs of God. This is God manifesting his Holy Spirit in, in this theophany, this manifestation of, of twin pillars, and, and it, the meaning of it is it's the legs of God uh, as he took his stand on earth amongst his people. And with this giant lampstand, so go back to Zechariah 4, this giant lampstand, it's all on fire, remember? It's all lit, it's all on fire. The, these twin olive trees overarching it, it, they would have been lit up by that menorah of fire, and they would have looked like they were on fire. And so the two olive trees, like those two familiar images, the, the twin pillars, the, the Ark of the Covenant top, it represents the presence of God. Okay, the, the two olive trees represent the presence of God. And the super weird thing about these olive trees is that their branches are feeding this heavy supply of olive oil directly into the lampstand, which Zechariah has never seen anything like this before. And so he asks, what's that? And the angel answers Zechariah at the end of the passage. He keeps asking, "Like, what is that? What is that? What is that? And the angel at the very end says, do you not know what these are? And he said, no, like, no, my Lord. And then he said, these are the two anointed ones who stand before the Lord of the whole earth. Now, I left it translated in the bulletin Uh, that way, the way the ESV translates it here. But if you have a Bible with an ESV translation, or this may just be, uh, I should have looked that up, see how it's translated in other versions. But if you go to the ESV, you're going to see a footnote there, right next to that translation that says, or this could be translated the two uh, sons of oil. And sons of oil is a phrase throughout the Old Testament that just means tons and tons of oil, plentiful oil. Like, so in Isaiah 5, uh, it calls this fertile hill a son of fatness, which just means tons of fat, because this hill feeds these cows. They're so well fed. We got tons of fatness on this hill. It's a fertile piece of land providing uh, plentiful fatness. So these, this hill is called uh, uh, sons of a hill. Uh, sons of fatness. So, so these trees provide what the point of calling them sons of oil is. They provide an inexhaustible, inexhaustible supply and source of oil for the lampstand. Now, the ESV. Follow me here. The ESV reads "Anointed ones" because the translators are making an interpretation more than a translation, because they think the two trees represent Zerubbabel the king and Joshua the priest, because these two offices in Israel, the king and the priest, they are anointed with oil. And it's got everything to do with oil, so we think these are anointed ones. But the picture is not of two anointed people anointing others with oil. And kings and priests in Israel, they do not anoint people with oil. And anointed ones also does not fit the picture, because You don't anoint trees with oil. Trees supply oil. The trees are anointing the lampstand with oil. So, who does anoint with oil in the Old Testament? The prophets. It's the prophets. And the two sons of oil, so the two sons of oil refer to prophets. In this other phrase, that the two, the two sons of oil, these are the two sons of oil who are standing by the Lord of the whole earth. That phrase, standing by the Lord of the whole earth, also refer, it's a reference to Old Testament prophets, because prophets stand in the council of God, and they hear his divine will, and then they take it to the people. So, do you see what we've done? Begs the question, wait, wait. Do the olive trees represent God or the prophets? You said God, now you're saying prophets. Yes. Uh, At the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, the apostle John, go to the end of the Bible, Revelation, John the apostle has a vision of two figures and they're called the two witnesses. This is in Revelation 11, AKA two witnesses, that is two prophets. And it says there, it says, in Revelation 11, it says, hey, these two prophets, they are the two olive trees. And they are the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And fire comes from them. And if you were just reading through Revelation 11, you read that, you'd be like, well, that doesn't make any sense. Except now that you've read Zechariah 4, you're like, wait, I think that makes sense. But does that make sense? As in, It's very, very clear from Revelation 11 that the two prophets, they are the church. That's who the two witnesses are. That's who the two prophets are. They are the church. And now on the one hand, it makes sense that if the two prophets are the church, that they are also called the two lampstands. Hey, the two prophets are the two lampstands. Oh, yeah, yeah, that makes sense because the lampstand in Zechariah 4 is Israel, the church. But in Revelation 11, the two prophets, the the two lampstands are also called the two olive trees. Now, uh, okay, on that hand, on the other hand, it does make sense that the two prophets are identified as the two olive trees because in Zechariah 4, the angel says that the two olive trees are the two sons of oil, a.k.a. the two prophets. But we started saying that the two olive trees are the presence of God and that the lampstand is the church. Revelation 11 says the true pro- the two prophets are the true are the two olive trees are the two lampstands. Blue steel uh, Ferrari LaTigra, they're the same face. Doesn't anyone notice this? I feel like I'm taking crazy pills. I invented the piano key necktie. I invented it. That's Zoolander. <laughs> Just to get across, like what? Okay. And it begs the question, okay, are we going too deep here in the images? (laughs) No, this is the point. Connect the dots. The two prophets in Revelation 11 are the two lampstands, and the two lampstands can be called the two olive trees because the two lampstands have replicated the likeness of the two olive trees. Let's substitute the real things in place of the images. The lampstand, a.k.a. the church, is being recreated in the image of God, the two olive trees. At the beginning of the book of Revelation, go to the book of the beginning of uh, Revelation, John the Apostle, his first vision, his first encounter, he meets the resurrected and glorified Jesus and this is how John describes it. I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. and On turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstand, one like a son of man. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. His face was like the sun shining in full strength. Here's Jesus surrounded by his lampstand church, but Jesus looks like the model lampstand. And surrounding him are his people who reflect him, who image him, who have taken on what he is. So why does the angel call the two olive trees the sons of oil? Why does the angel call the two olive trees the sons of oil, a.k.a. the two prophets? Well, who is the prophet who truly anoints the people of God? It is Christ. It is the son of God. And you see this in the Zechariah 4 vision. You got to remember remember what the lampstand is made of. The lampstand was crafted with a wood frame and then it's overlaid with gold. And it's got seven branches. The lampstand full of golden oil is a golden tree. Stylized after the image of the two olive trees that are overflowing with its golden oil and fueling this image, golden lampstand tree. Christ is the one who is anointed with the Spirit. He is the one with the Spirit. He has the Spirit and he gives the Spirit to his people. So here's the vision. Ready? Let me give you the summary of it. The olive trees are Christ. The oil is his Holy Spirit that he gives to the lampstand who is his church and he's recreating it in it in his image of glory. And even more cooler is the one lampstand in Zechariah 4 has become two lampstands in Revelation 11 as in God more and more changes his people to look more and more like his son. In Revelation 1, the church in heaven, there's Jesus with his church in heaven. It's not, it's not one lampstand. It's not two lampstands. It is seven lampstands, which is a picture of complete glorification. Jesus has done it. Last week, we, we saw that one of the elements of bearing God's image is holiness. It's, it's truth. It's bearing the truth. This vision also shows us this other element of bearing God's image, and it is visible luminosity. It is, it is real, true, physical awesomeness, physical luminosity, like, like, like Revelation 1, Jesus. In the book of Daniel, it's, this is in the Old Testament, it says, one day the people of God will shine like the stars. Right now, that glory, it is hidden inside you, but we know it is there by faith. And so here's a, so like, okay, so what? Here's the so what? When you look at another Christian, when the church gathers, this is who you are encountering. This is who you are sitting next to. You do not see the light of glory. You do not see this visible luminosity right now when you look at yourself in the mirror or when, when, when you look at another Christian beside you, but we know that glory is there and we know it by faith. We know this about one another and one day when Jesus comes back, that glory will be exposed as we are raised from the dead bodily and transformed in glory. That person next to you, is filled with God's glory. And that should change the way that we treat each other right now. In the weight of glory, C.S. Lewis, he says it like this, says the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to, you talk to may one day be a creature which if you saw it now, you would strongly be tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet if only in a nightmare. And all day long we are in some degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It's in, it's in the light of these overwhelming possibilities with the awe and circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another. Like all friendships, all, lo- all, all loves, all play. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. My daughter Maisie is reading the Harry Potter books uh, right now. And yesterday Maisie asked, okay, which book is it where you can guess the ending? And she's in book two. She's like, okay, which book is it? And there's seven. Which book is it where you can guess the ending? And I told her, you, you're not, you cannot guess the ending. Keep going. Now, and don't cheat like, like I do. Now, the author, J.K. Rowling, she knew exactly where she was going from the beginning. She lays down essential plot points and clues. I'm not giving anything away, but like Harry catching the snitch in his mouth or the color of Harry's eyes, that is all huge. And and all that happens in the first 100 pages of the first book. That will play a key role in the the final 100 pages of the whole series. And it took J.K. Rowling 17 years to write the entire series. But she wrote the ending of the seventh and final book before she ever took the first book to a publisher. Every detail in each individual book serves the larger story. It serves the, the whole series, and it cannot be understood until you read the final 100 pages. She, she's this master architect storyteller bringing 4,000 pages into harmony in the end, which means you really do not understand Harry Potter until you know the end. You can read 4,000 pages, but if you have not read the final 100 pages, you do not understand Harry Potter. Same for us. We cannot understand our own stories until we have read the final 100 pages. Until we know the end, the end that has no end, that goes on for eternity, we cannot understand the present. We can't understand what's going on right now. Our glorification is the certain future that helps us make sense of our joys and our sorrows, our successes and our failures, all of our relationships, the good and the bad. We've got to look at each other, not by sight, but with the eyes of faith and believe what God has said about us, that you will shine like a star one day, forever, and Zachariah's incessant questioning is, okay, wait, how, how is this accomplished? Like what kind of tree does this? Because what Zechariah knows is in Solomon's temple, they got the olive oil from, from the farmers. You got farmers who tend the olive trees. They harvest the olives. They press the olives to get the oil. Merchants take the uh, olive oil. They bring it to the priests. Every day, the priests are going and getting more oil, collecting this oil, bringing it into the holy place, pouring it into the bowl of the lampstand, and never allowing the fire to go out. And during these 70 years of captivity, that all got interrupted because it turns out man is not dependable. Because we're sinful, and because Israel is sinful, God brings Babylon to destroy Jerusalem, destroy the temple, takes the lampstand along with all the other precious materials in the temple, as spoils of war, back to Babylon. The farmers are taken, so there's no one there to tend the olives. Harvest the olives. Press the olives. No merchants to bring the oil into Jerusalem. No priests to take the oil into the holy place and fill the bowls of the lampstand. There is no temple. There is no holy place. There is no lampstand. There is no fire. All is dark. It's a symbol of God's judgment on an unfaithful, rebellious, idolatrous people consigned to darkness. But this vision... It promises hope and a solution. By God's own design, there is a new arrangement with the olive trees and the lampstand. Zachariah is looking at some kind of Willy Wonka uh, olive tree. Uh, the branches of the olive trees by, by some weird connecting apparatus are feeding mighty streams of oil into golden pipes directly into the bowls of the lampstand. It's this inexhaustible source of fuel ensuring these flames will never go out. And there's no need for farmers, merchants, or priests that, that prove to be unfaithful. And, and the point there is not that there's no role for God's people, that's not the point. The point is assurance. It's assurance that y- you, will, you will be the light of the world because this is all of God. Which is why he says, not by your might, or your power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Is the Holy Spirit is the supply of the church's limitless energy and source to keep burning as the light, to be the church. And just like that second temple, this second temple that is being rebuilt, it is not all that splendorous. So the church right now, does not look all that splendorous, but one day we will shine. And this is not, And what God tells Zachariah here is this is not something the church, this is not something mankind in all of their brilliance can do. As in, we cannot transform ourselves. There is no fountain of youth, there is no plant-based diet, no medicine, no surgery, no technology that can ever do this for us. And this very, very popular notion today that people want their outside to reflect who they believe themselves to be on the inside, that did not come out of thin air. That notion, it it has been twisted by the world. That notion has been twisted by the world, but it is a twisting of a longing that God created the first man by the breath of his spirit, indwelling him with his light, that was always meant to one day be exposed in the end, in glorification. But Zechariah is also asking, "Okay, wait, how can such a thing? How can such a thing be accomplished? Like, how is it possible for God, who is a God of fiery glory, to dwell among and in a sinful people and not consume them?" Like, how can God dwell in his people and not consume them in his fiery glory? Moses is confronted by God in the burning bush. That is the first promise to Israel of God's presence among them and in them without consuming them. Because here is a very, very flammable bush that ought to burn up instantly, and yet it does not get consumed. Later, God instructs Moses to build the tabernacle in the wilderness, and then he instructs Solomon to build the temple in Jerusalem, and in both was the golden lampstand that looked like a tree that was on fire, and yet it did not burn up a promise that God will dwell amongst a sinful people and not consume them. And God manifested his fiery presence. He brings back that twin pillar of cloud and smoke. He manifests his fiery presence and he descends into the tabernacle and then he descends into the temple and he takes up residence there. And yet Israel knows the fiery judgment of God for their their idolatry. They abandoned the temple and the God of glory for the pagan God of the nations. So God's fiery presence, it abandons them in judgment, and it brings Babylon against them in judgment, and it casts Israel into the darkness of exile. So when God brings Israel back from Babylon to start rebuilding this second temple, the question on everyone's mind is, okay, okay, so when is God's presence of fiery glory? Like, when is it gonna come down again and fill this temple? And it still had not come at the end of the Old Testament. And it still had not come when Jesus showed up. And by the time you get to Jesus, God's fiery presence had long been removed from the temple for almost 600 years. And it still hadn't come when Jesus died, and when he was resurrected, and when he was ascended. And then Pentecost comes. And so does the Spirit. The glory presence of fire, when when all those uh, uh, disciples and all these Jews from around the world are gathered in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost, the glory presence of fire, the Holy Spirit descends again, but he does not descend to the temple. That's not where they are at Pentecost. He returns in his fiery presence and he rests on the people of God, making his home in them. At Pentecost, the Holy Spirit descends in fire on his people, and he, and he does not burn them up. These fire. This fire coming out of all of the apostles, the people of God, what that means is the people of God are like the burning bush now. The people of God are like Mount Sinai that was all on fire. It's like a lampstand, but we are not burned up. The disciples all look like living lampstands, and the followers of Jesus are the lampstands, because now the church is the temple of God. And again, I know I haven't said, okay, how? Like, how is that possible? Israel was judged for their sin, but it was not final judgment. The 70 years of captivity in Babylon, like that was the exile, but it was not exile into true outer darkness. Israel was a picture of what mankind deserves if they related to God based on their own works. The good news of the grace of God is that true Israel, Jesus, descended from heaven to ascend a cross. And in the Gospels it says that while Jesus is on that cross from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, darkness descended on the land. As Jesus, the light of the world, took God's fiery judgment in the place of his people, and he was cast into ultimate darkness. And that, Jesus taking our punishment for us, casts the darkness out of us. And it makes it possible for God to fill us with the light of his glory. I think I maybe heard uh, uh, this story uh, a year ago from another minister who uh, is about a guy named Neil, Neil White, uh, Neil, this guy Neil, grew up on the Gulf Coast, and uh, he, got, he got into the publishing business in a small town. It's his first attempt at business, and this, this one town has one newspaper, really small town, one, one newspaper, so he starts a rival newspaper, and, and he's, it's, just, it's super successful. Uh, Neil tells you in this memoir that he wanted success. He wanted to be uh, seen as successful. This is back in the 80s, this is the very 80s. He was super into Cologne, Super into start shirts, nice car, beautiful wife, beautiful kids. That vacation home and his star—it's on the rise. Newspapers growing, advertisers coming over. But then he gets into financial trouble, mismanages his finances, and one advertiser pulls out, and then he can't pay payroll, and he panics and he starts kiting checks, and that's—it's a—it's a form of check fraud. It's—it's it's illegal, uh, and he's writing checks basically against non-existent funds. And uh, after a while, he got caught. But here, he's got, he's got so much social clout at this point. He knows everyone in town, so he really didn't get in trouble, but he ups and moves. And he goes back to his hometown, which is a big city, uh, and he starts all over. He goes even bigger in publishing, starts a new magazines, got a couple other ventures going on, and it really, really, really takes off. Uh, and his dream is being realized. He's becoming super successful socially. He's being asked to be you know sit on boards. He's seen as this big philanthropist. And then the same thing happens. Uh, gets into financial trouble, doesn't manage his assets well, and he starts hiding checks again, at a, this time at a, at a huge, huge rate. And he gets caught, uh, and this time he is sent to prison. And this is in the 90s, and, and he's sentenced to a prison in Louisiana. This is the last of its kind, this prison. it was, uh, It functioned as part prison and part leper colony. And prisoners were not supposed to be around the lepers, and lepers were not supposed to be around prisoners. And so, of course, it happens where they're around each other. Uh, and Neil met lepers with deformed faces and deformed limbs and hands. And one time he was in the chapel, and he saw this leper sitting with a Bible. And the man began running his tongue over the Bible. And an inmate buddy of Neil's, uh leans over and jokes, he must not have eaten his breakfast this morning. And Neil comes to find out that this man was blind, and it's a braille Bible. And he had lost sensitivity in his fingers because of his leprosy. So he was reading the Bible with his tongue. And in the memoir, Neil says that these people would have been totally beneath him, totally beneath his interest in his old life when he was on fire hanging with you know beautiful, important people, and then he gets dumped into their world. And the name of his memoir is In the Sanctuary of Outcasts. And he realizes that he had to become a social leper before he could see who he really was and who the people of God are. And above where the leper was sitting was a stained glass window with a verse from 2 Corinthians that said, I will console them in all their afflictions. And Neil said that verse. In his old life, it wouldn't have meant anything to him. Now it did. Most of us live in a way where like, I don't feel like I'm walking in a world of darkness, but if Jesus is the model lampstand, and we are saved out of this world of darkness and recreated in his image, then if he's the model lampstand, we are going to be opposed like him. Persecuted like him. Suffer like him. Experience darkness like him. And our consolation is not our best life now. Our consolation is a resurrection like his. And it is a glory like his. And it is coming. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. This word of glory that is given to us through your Son, and through the power of his Holy Spirit indwelling us. We praise you for it. Uh, We pray that this would open up our eyes to see the light, to see the light of our Lord, and to see that light by faith in us and in our brothers and sisters, and we pray this in Christ's name, and that you would give us that hope and help us to hold on to that hope until you call us home or until you come back, and we pray for that day. In Christ's name.